Lindy, and welcome to Life in Pieces. This is a podcast that takes an autobiographical view on my life and the little pieces that many may not know. Welcome to my podcast. I'm still trying to find a rhythm to this uh, whole thing, but I'm, I'm kind of making it up as I go. I am excited as I keep getting new listeners. I am continually building a network and connecting with people who can relate to me and my story, and it feels great. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving holiday while remaining safe. I know it's hard right now, uh, but I but I do hope for better times ahead with a vaccine soon. Um, at least I hope in the future, and hopefully very near future, we can get we can all get back to a normal life, or you know, more of a normal life anyway. So over the holiday, I did several puzzles, which should not be a surprise, but. As you know, often happens, you turn on Netflix and you've got some free time and you find a new series that just piques your interest. And I started down a rabbit hole because I started watching the Leah Remini Scientology series on Netflix. And I have finished season one and I can't stop watching it. Mormonism and Scientology are different for sure, but they do have some similar things in terms of mindset and seeing and hearing some of the parallels is quite creepy and honestly a little unsettling. But it got me thinking. As I was watching this series, it was amazing to me the amount of terms, phrases, words that are very unique to Scientology. And then I realized Mormonism is kind of the same way, and really every religion and possibly any special group really uh, likely has terms and phrases that are unique to them. So I thought I'd take a break from my normal and talk about and define some of the unique phrases, words, and terms that are very everyday for Mormons, but others may hear and be like, what? Let's look at some of the words and phrases that I grew up with, and I will add some anecdotes along the way and personal touches, but these don't really go in any order as I wrote them down as they came to my brain. So I'm gonna start with uh, missionary or mission. So this is actually probably one that many people know, but a mission in a missionary are where a member of the church volunteers to serve the church for a period of time and they preach the gospel and try to recruit people to join the church. Now that may be a simplified version, but that's my definition. So for men, this mission is two years in length. And for women, I'm pretty sure it's 18 months. At least that's what it used to be. Men are more or less expected to do this. Um, although they claim it's still volunteer. I do think um, if you are a man in the Mormon church that doesn't go on a mission, you automatically have a stigma on you. So they claim it's volunteer, but you know. And then many women will serve, but it's not expected or even necessarily encouraged as they obviously encourage the women to get married and start having children. So you will see women serving missions. There's just not as many of them and they serve for less time. So moving on, MTC. Now the MTC stands for Missionary Training Center. And this is a place that is where they send missionaries to 
go right before they go on their missions. And the length of time they spend at the MTC really depends on where they will be serving their mission and if they have to learn a language as part of their mission. Their stay can be as short as three weeks or as long as 12. And the MTC is located in Provo, Utah and is right next to BYU and is technically part of its campus. Uh, many students at BYU will take up jobs at the MTC. And I don't recall if you have to be a return missionary to work at the MTC, but most were from my recollection. And it's, you know, it's one of the highly coveted jobs there. Dear John, so we're kind of sticking with the missionary theme here. So Dear John, this is a funny one because it's actually a phrase indicating when a missionary who's out on their mission would get a letter from their significant other that they left at home, um, you know, while they are serving. And this letter is to basically inform this missionary that they are no longer dating the person who wrote the letter. So to say you're dear John means you're out on a mission and your girlfriend back home writes you a letter basically saying, uh, I've started dating someone else. So the, this happens all the time, enough to the point where they have a phrase for it. Um, but it's pretty common that you'll quote unquote wait for your missionary. But if you don't wait for your missionary to get, get back, you'll often send them a Dear John letter. Um, and it's hilarious to me that they have a specific uh, thing designated for this. But anyway, so uh, going on to return missionaries. So this is commonly referred to as an RM. And this is someone who has returned from their mission. And RMs were the highlight um, and very sought out group of people at BYU. And we were taught as women that we should marry an RM as they were the most righteous. And as I said, think about it now, it's so gross because those who didn't serve a mission were automatically marked, especially for the men. As I mentioned previously, technically it's volunteer, but if you don't go and say you go to BYU, you're kind of just given the stigma of, oh, he didn't serve a, miss a mission. You know, I could, I could do better. It's terrible. But I, I am guilty of when I was active in the church thinking, oh my gosh, I got to marry an RM. That's what I got to do. I got to marry an RM. So yeah, anyway, moving on, uh, garments. Now to the outside world, you may have probably heard these called this called magic underwear. I, I never wore these because I never went through the temple to take out my endowments. And what that is, we'll get into a little bit later in this episode. But yeah, from what I have heard, they aren't comfortable. They're hot, they stick to the skin easily. There's a couple different materials that they can choose from um, for what these garments will be made out of but they go just above the knee um, and then they have sleeves. So this is just another reason why they train you from a very young age to wear shorts that go below the knee and to wear and to never wear tank tops, especially for the women, because you have to be able to cover your garments and they're kind of training you for that. So the next one I have on here is Peter Priesthood. Um, now, Peter Priesthood, this is what would you would describe as a goody goody Mormon boy. Uh, someone that never does anything wrong and plays by all the rules. And they boast about it. They know they're this type of person. Now, the female version of this is referred to as a Molly Mormon, but it's the same thing. A very goody-goody Mormon girl um, who 
just follows all the rules and makes you feel bad about it if you slip up at all. Because they know that they're that, this type of person and they brag about it. They're, and honestly, they're also constantly judging everybody else. Constantly. Now, on the flip side of this, there's what they call a Jack Mormon. And this would be someone who is a quote-unquote Mormon, but only in name and not in practice. You might find this person um, at a bar or at wild parties. I, I've heard this also referred to as Saturday Sinner, Sunday Sate. So someone who is, they, they call themselves a Mormon, but they're not really following any of the practices that the Mormon church believes. And honestly, at one point or another, you could have probably called me a Jack Mormon. All right, hold on to your hats here because this next one hurts a little bit. Sweet spirit. Now in the name of it itself, you might just think that that means, you know, someone who's got a sweet spirit about them. But in the Mormon church, it's, it's, off, it's a phrase that is often used to describe someone who is very nice, but not attractive. And I had this put on me several times, but at the time, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't realize of what this phrase actually meant until I got to BYU. And when I heard the definition, I have to tell you, I cried because I realized what people were saying about me just by saying, oh, she's such a sweet spirit. Yeah, it's very demeaning. And half, I, my guess is a lot of people that hear it don't really know what it means either. It was one of the many things that led me to my anger towards the church. And ultimately when I was at BYU started to lead me down the path of, okay, yeah, I'm not continuing this once I graduate. Okay, so these next two are very, I wanna say BYU specific, but they're terrible. So DTR stands for define the relationship. Now I've also heard it called determine the relationship, but this was a common thing at BYU. And I will admit I had one experience with a DTR while I was at BYU. Now, people who are dating, but the relationship appears not to be going anywhere, or in other words, not towards marriage, they would sit down and have a heart to heart discussion on defining the relationship. Are we just friends? Are we makeout partners? Or is this for real? And I am not kidding, this was a thing. Um, it's not even just determining the status of your relationship. Are you dating or are you not? It's we're dating, but are we really working towards marriage? Yeah, so they would have a DTR. So the next one is NICMO, which it's N-C-M-O, but you'll most often hear to it referred as NICMO. It stands for non-committal makeout. This is very prevalent at BYU. I, I did this several times and I hate to admit that I did, but I did. Um, and it happens all too often at LDS colleges. And basically it's with sex off the table where a, you know, sex would be a normal thing. A lot of young adults would find partners to make out with, but it was no strings attached. So hence non-committal makeout. And I know too many people that experienced their first kiss with an ICMO because they were at college, they couldn't express themselves sexually, which is normal at that age. And, you know, they found a partner to make out with, but it was no strings attached. And I will admit, although it was my first kiss, I took part in several NICMOs. All right, CTR. This is a 
you know, this is one that you, you learn in primary and primary is when you're a little kid. So CTR stands for choose the right. And they, you know, they even have rings for this. Um, they give rings to eight year olds or newly baptized kids. And then you will find, you know, you can find super fancy rings that you can purchase that are CTR rings when you're an adult. And it is on a pretty iconic shield. It's a green little shield um, with the letters CTR inside of it. And the more fancy ones are all silver. They got some fancy, you know, lettering or pattering around it. But the, the ones you got as an eight-year-old were just a basic silver ring, a green shield on the top with, um, with the letter CTR in it just as a constant reminder to choose the right, as if you weren't told that every five seconds in the church. But this ring was to serve, the, serve its purpose. All right, here's a funny one. Mormon standard time. I find this hilarious because it's true. Mormons make fun of the fact that many of them run late. And so they created a phrase, Mormon standard time. Um, and I'm usually early to most things, so this didn't really apply to me personally, but I know a ton of people this applied to, including people within my own family. All right, so mutual. Now, this is a term used to describe weeknight activities sponsored by the church for teenagers or youth, and it's it often consisted of a lesson, an activity or craft of some sort, and of course, food, which is most often dessert. And if three hours of church on Sunday wasn't enough, you also had an activity during the week. And it did, mutual most often fell on Wednesdays. And it's usually for about an hour. Um, so you would, if I recall correctly, you would come home from school, you would do some homework, and then mutual started at like 6 or 7 p.m. And you would be there till like 8, 8.30, something along those lines. And then you'd have to go home and finish work or finish your homework. Now, there's also something called FHE, or Family Home Evening. From the time you were little all the way through college, and really when you have your own family, um, you have Family Home Evening, or you're supposed to. It's, a, it's pretty structured as far as what happens. Again, there's a it starts with a prayer, then you have a song, then you have a lesson, and then, you know, family announcements, and usually an activity, and then again, dessert or, you know, some sort of snack or food. And as a kid, this was huge. And at BYU, this was huge. And oftentimes it would be a priesthood leader who would assign you something. Okay, you're doing the, um, you know, you're doing the lesson this week, or you're doing the, you know, make a dessert this week or whatever it may be. Um, now, when you're at BYU, you're with your, you know, roommates and people that you attend church with. And they would often, as one of the callings, and I'll get to what a calling is a little bit later, but they would, as a calling, assign, you know, you'd be called as the FHE mom or FHE dad um, when really you're just a person at college who's, you know, living in a specific apartment complex and, you know, you are now a ward mom or, you know, an FHE mom or an FHE dad. It's weird. All right, so let's move on to ward. Now, I guess it's as good as time as any to define what a ward is because I'm pretty sure this is in a couple other definitions, but most often when I say the term, most people think of a psych ward or mental ward because that's what you will most often hear the term ward associated with. But in the Mormon church, it's a geographical boundary that defines a congregation, usually, you know, 
three to 500 members per ward or so. And of course that really varies depending on location and where you're at and how many Mormons there are. Um, but drilling down a little bit deeper, a singles ward, uh, this is specifically for young adults over the age of 18 up to age 30. Now after age 30, if you're not married yet, you would either go back to the family ward or find a single adult ward, which is for those aged 31 to 45. So if you haven't caught on yet, the goal of the singles ward was to find a spouse. They would put you specifically in a worshiping group, basically, um, where if you weren't married, you know, by the time you got to 18, obviously you're really searching for a spouse and you had until basically age 30 to find that spouse. And if you didn't, you aged out of the singles ward and then you go to the single adult ward, which is for people up to about age 45, in which case they kind of get, at that point, if you're not married, you often will go back to a family ward. So there's stages to this. Isn't that so nice? So yeah, they're for single people um, looking to mingle and find a spouse. Now, after a ward, there is a stake. And a stake is usually made up of seven to nine wards. So you have your ward that you attend every Sunday. Um, or that you, that you meet with every Sunday. And then that ward is part of a stake. And usually there's, like I said, seven to nine wards or so in a stake. And again, it really depends on geographical area and you know the, the density of Mormons that you have in that area. Um, but typically you would meet as a stake a few times a year. Um, they would usually call it state conference. Now a bishop is the leader of a ward, and this would probably be equivalent to a pastor in other religions. All right, so these next few are kind of all over the place, but like I said, these are really just as they came to my head. So EFY stands for Especially for Youth, and it's a week-long youth camp uh, focused on fellowship and teaching gospel principles. And I attended a few of these, um, and at the time, I thought they were fantastic. Many times, uh, they will take over a campus somewhere, like BYU has them all summer, but I attended one, I think it was at, um, it was in Kansas City. Um, I think it was in Lawrence, Kansas. But we took over the campus and used the dorms um, for the housing for the week. And these camps aren't free, uh, but these camps were, and I'm pretty sure they still are, super popular. Uh, and you almost felt like you weren't an elite club if you had attended an EFY. Uh, you would come home, you know, after the end of the summer and you'd meet up with friends, you know, whatever. They'd be like, did you go to EFY this summer? Oh, you didn't? Like, that's kind of how it felt. Even if that's not how the actual conversation went, you felt like you were part of the special group if you had the opportunity to attend EFY. And because it's not free, not everybody could, obviously. But they, I, I do remember them being fun, but it kind of puts you in this elite group. And I hate that, that that's kind of, you know, where I put myself. Uh, going to the temple now. So... Baptisms for the dead. Yeah, it's a weird one. So baptism is huge in the Mormon church and it's taught that baptism is essential in the salvation of all who have lived on earth. And, but you know, many people, however, you know, died before being, or, you know, without being baptized. And by performing these proxy baptisms on behalf of those who have died, um, church members, you know, offer these blessings to deceased ancestors. 
And it is said that these individuals can then choose to accept or reject um, what has been done on their behalf. Now, these baptisms for the dead are really the only thing that youth could do in the temple. And you still had to be worthy to enter the temple to be able to do these baptisms for the dead, which usually involved being grilled by a bishop in, you know, in order to receive your temple recommend. But it was also called a limited use temple recommend because it was given to the youth um, and the only thing they could do was baptisms, ba baptisms for the dead in this ordinance. Now, on the flip side of that, you've got the endowment ordinance, which I had to um, take this definition from an online search because this whole thing is very hush-hush unless you've been through it. Now, with the invention of the internet, that has been changing a little bit, but I can't speak from experience on this one. According to Wikipedia, it's basically an ordinance designed to prepare participants to become kings, queens, priests, and priestesses in the afterlife. And as part of the ceremony, participants take part in a scripted reenactment of the biblical creation and fall of Adam and Eve. Now, this, these ordinance, this ordinance particularly is usually done right before a mission or when someone is about to get married, because that's when they go through the temple. And from what I have heard, I am glad I never went through this. It's kind of a little, it's kind of scary from what I've heard. I'm not going to say it on this podcast just because it's not my place. I have not been through it. But if you do some research and look on YouTube, you can see just how creepy this is. Now, uh, this is, after doing this endowment ordinance, this is when members of the church will start to wear those garments I mentioned earlier. Active and inactive members. Now, as an active member... You are a person who actively attends all your all or most of your church meetings and who holds a calling. And an inactive member is a person who is baptized Mormon but who doesn't attend regularly or hold a calling. Now, I was inactive for a very long time until recently when I finally put in my resignation to have my records removed, but until I actually had my records removed, I was just considered an inactive member. Now, Calling. I have mentioned this word a couple of times, but there are no paid positions in local wards or stakes, and the work of the church is carried out mostly through volunteer service by the members, and they are called by priesthood leaders to contribute in various capacities. Now, callings may be general requests, they may be assignments to follow some particular instruction for the, you know, benefit of the church, um, you know, they may be assignments to serve within the priesthood, um, requests to fill specific administrative teaching or service-oriented positions. They're usually for an indefinite period of time, and you will stay in the calling until you're told to leave it. Um, now, committed Latter-day Saints accept and fulfill one or more callings at any given time. And they don't usually start until you're a young teen. Um, and then they have some pretty, what I will call, interesting callings to make sure everyone has an assignment. Uh, but like many other things, this is kind of a status check and what kind of calling you have can almost speak to what kind of member you are. For instance, if you're being called as a bishop of a ward, you're obviously a pretty righteous member, supposedly. Um, you know, if you're being called as, you know, a secretary of the Young Women's or Relief Society or priesthood or whatever, you know, that you're, you're doing pretty good. Um, but they have like very 
I mean, FHE mom, FHE dad, those are callings. I mean, not that I wouldn't say they're important. They're kind of more for structure reasons, but depending on what calling you have really kind of put a label on you of how righteous you were. And I don't think I am alone in thinking that, but I definitely remember, you know, being at BYU and thinking, oh, well, either I don't have a calling or my calling is pretty like not very important. And it, it makes you feel like you're not important or you're not doing enough. All right. So seminary. Now, these are programs of religious education for, you know, youth aged about 14 to 18 that accompany the student's secular education. So in places that are heavily Mormon, they will have seminary as part of their daily classes in high school. And for those that may not live in a mostly Mormon area or heavily populated Mormon area, they do what is called early morning seminary, which is what I did. And it means you get up at the butt crack of dawn and go learn about church stuff and then go to school. So it's still part of your education, but it's done before school because there's not enough Mormons where you live to be able to make it part of your, you know, high school classes schedule, which is often what they do in Utah from my understanding. Now, after seminary, there is something called Institute. Now, Institute is very similar to seminary, but it's for after the high school years. And you will often see college-age kids that don't go to BYU or some other church-sponsored college attending Institute to supplement their secular learning. And those who attend colleges like BYU, like I did, have religious learning built into the curriculum. So this is for those that go to college that, you know, do not um, go to a church college. Most places I know about um, where there are major colleges have, you know, an Institute of Religion nearby. Um, because it's very common. All right, word of wisdom. This is uh, one that actually came up in conversation with my girlfriend a little while ago, and she's like, word of wisdom? What is that? Um, so this is one that members must abide by in order to go to the temple, and it prevents members from using or consuming alcohol, illegal drugs, tobacco, coffee, tea, and harmful substances. It's also, it, it also urges members to eat healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and to eat meat sparingly. But funny thing is they seem to really only focus on the alcohol, coffee, tea, etc. But you don't often see them focus on the meat or healthy eating piece. I'm pretty sure there are people that don't eat a lot of vegetables and have a lot of meat that still are at the temple. So now I'm going to finish this off with the Articles of Faith. And Articles of Faith are, um, I, I pulled this directly from the church website, but they are the 13 basic points of belief of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The prophet Joseph Smith first wrote them in a letter to John Wentworth, a newspaper editor, in response to Mr. Wentworth's request to know what members of the church believed. They were subsequently published in church periodicals, and they are now regarded as scripture. Now, there were multiple instances where I had to memorize these. I had to do it in seminary and I had to do it at BYU as part of some of my religion classes. But here they are. There are 13 of them. Number one, we believe in God, the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Two, that men will be punished only for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Three, that through Christ's atonement, we can be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Four, 
that faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion, confirmation, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost are all necessary for salvation. Five, that leaders and teachers in the church must be chosen and ordained by priesthood power. Six, that Christ's church today is organized as it was when he first established it. Seven, in a modern day revelation and priesthood healing and blessings. Eight, that the Bible and Book of Mormon are both divinely revealed scripture. Nine, that God has communicated with and will continue to communicate with humankind. 10. In the literal gathering of Israel in the restoration of the 10 tribes and that Zion will be built on the American continent when Christ reigns on the earth. 11. In worshiping God according to our own dictates and allowing others to do likewise. 12. In sustaining the laws and leaders of the land. 13. In being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Okay. You also had to memorize these word for word. Like it wasn't just like a generic, okay, this is what the first one, second one, third one is. You had to memorize these word for word. All right, so I could keep going. There are tons of words and phrases that are used by the Mormon church that are unique to them. It's interesting to see and try to define some of these things as I just you know, grew up knowing what they were and what they meant. And in conversation with my girlfriend and with other people, trying to describe certain things, I often find it difficult because each definition of something has a new word um, that isn't common and that is specific to the Mormon church. So I, it, it just gets into this complicated circle of defining different things. But this might also be one of the reasons why they have missionaries um, to pull in new members because they have to her, learn a whole new vocabulary. Well, you know, that's one reason they have them anyway. There's lots of reasons for missionaries, I suppose. All right. Uh, don't forget, you can email me at lifeandpiecespodcast at gmail.com if you have any topic suggestions, questions, comments, Uh, stories that you would like me to share on future episodes. I love hearing from you. And that is all I have for you today. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Lindy. This is Life in Pieces. Until next time.